Chapter 1 The Hijackings September of 1970 was a turning point in the Palestinians' fight. In a coordinated action that stunned the world, the PFLP staged a series of hijackings in which its guerrillas seized three planes. Two of them were flown to Dawson's Field, a disused desert airstrip outside Amman, Jordan. The third plane, a new Jumbo 747, landed in Cairo and was blown up as soon as the passengers had disembarked. A fourth hijack attempt, of an El Al Airlines jet, was foiled in flight. A day later, another plane was hijacked to Dawson's Field. By the end, three jetliners were parked in the Jordanian desert, with over 300 passengers being held hostage and the PFLP demanding the release of some of its members from Israeli jails. Although hijackings were not uncommon, this was the biggest ever, and I felt a twinge of jealousy that I was not covering it. It wasn't long before my wish came true. The following day, I had a call from London telling me that I should be on the next plane to Beirut. Jerry Lochran, the UPI bureau chief there, had gone to Amman to cover the story, and I was to go to Beirut to help out. Beirut at that time was one of the most exotic and beautiful cities in the Mediterranean. It was often called the Paris of the Middle East, and the name was apt. Just as Britain had been given control over Palestine after World War I, France had been given the mandate over Lebanon, and there was still a strong French influence there. Beirut was a vibrant open city, with nightclubs, bars, casinos, and restaurants. Beirut was where the sheiks and emirs of more strictly Muslim Arab countries came to play or seal deals with businessmen from London, Paris, or New York over glasses of champagne at the King George Hotel. It was the city where the spies spied on one another and occasionally even drank together. As soon as I landed, I went straight to the UPI Bureau, which was located in the Anahar newspaper building on Hamra Street. The office was in turmoil when I arrived. The hijackers had just released a group of passengers, some women, children, and older people. And Jerry Lochran was giving the details over the phone from Amman. I dropped my bag, sat down at a typewriter, and began writing a story from the notes Jerry was dictating. The other reporters must have guessed who I was because they kept passing me information. It was only after we got the story filed that we introduced ourselves. The man on the telephone with Jerry was Wadi Haddad, one of the reporters in Beirut. Edmund Hadge, a reporter from Cairo who had been sent to Beirut to help cover the story, had been listening to radio broadcasts in Arabic. For the next couple of days, I spent most of my waking hours at the Beirut UPI office writing stories on the information Jerry phoned in from Amman and from what Edmund and Wadi picked up from monitoring the Arab-language radio newscasts. Then, early one morning, before I'd even had my coffee, I had a call at the hotel, telling me that Jerry needed a rest and London wanted me to go to Amman to take his place. I had an hour to get to the airport. Amman a whitewashed city in the middle of the desert, was a stark contrast to Beirut. If Beirut was wide open, Amman seemed like it was under siege. At first glance, it looked like any other town. There was traffic on the streets and people went about their business as usual. Then I noticed the men with guns on almost every corner. But these men were Palestinian guerrillas, not Jordanian traffic cops. On the drive into town, my taxi was stopped three times by Palestinians with AK-47s. 
I left the talking to my driver, and what he said must have been all right because each time we were waved on. There was no UPI office in Amman, so I went straight to the Intercontinental Hotel, which was the headquarters for 100 journalists who were there to cover the...